Welcome to Next Left. I'm John Nichols of The Nation magazine, and I've got a question for you. Can one judge in one local court change the future of criminal justice policy, not just in his hometown, but nationwide? That's a tall order, but Texas Judge Franklin Bynum is doing his part to upend the prison industrial complex from Houston's Harris County Court Bench. He's a democratic socialist and a modern-day abolitionist. Judge Franklin Bynum, thanks for joining us on Next Left. Thanks. It's good to be here. I want to start by taking you back to your to your roots a little bit. Did you dream of becoming a judge when you were a kid? No, no, far from it. It was never anything that I actually considered. Uh, it was really just kind of time and place and circumstance that brought me to it. And But your dad was a lawyer. Yeah, I grew up in a small law firm in a little law shack. Um, you know, my dad grew up in a small town, kind of taught himself math on public television. And uh, he himself was the, the son of a uh, USDA geologist and a public school teacher who they would travel around the state. So really a service-minded kind of person. And, you know, eventually my dad moved to Houston, went to Rice, and uh, then was charging hard trying to make it, I guess, working for an insurance company, but then dropped out and became a psychedelic rock producer and produced like the 13th floor elevators and some other stuff that was happening down here around that time. And then eventually, uh, I guess, went to law school and started up a small law shack, as I call it, where he was basically helping, you know, poor people, working people kind of like get some walking around money after they got hurt. But the law to me was always a thing that helped people. So that's the environment I grew up in. You grew up in a neighborhood called Montrose. Is that right? Right. And you said on one of the interviews along the way that that one of the things that kind of shaped your thinking about the law, obviously, in addition to your dad's work, was seeing people you knew, friends even, getting busted and, and really having a hard time with the law. Yeah, it was friends of mine growing up, and it was also my neighbors, you know? I mean, the Houston Police Department uh, was notorious for targeting gay people for being gay, right? Targeting gay clubs. The Lawrence versus Texas Supreme Court decision was actually organized uh, in my neighborhood at a gay bar. There were some closeted sheriff's department employees drinking after work saying, oh, you wouldn't believe what came through today. It was an arrest for sodomy. You know, I haven't seen one of those ever. So they started talking and there happened to be a lawyer from Lambda nearby who I think might have been working at the bar. So they organized this Supreme Court litigation that for the first time recognized gay rights uh, just here at a gay bar in the neighborhood I grew up in. So it was always a, a pretty radical neighborhood. It was pretty, it's a neighborhood where if you were different and the world was less than kind outside of the, the walls a few blocks away, you know, so to speak, uh, it was a place you could be. So you grew up in a pretty progressive neighborhood, but it wasn't far away that you saw the impact of law and the impact of the criminal justice system. Another thing you said that was that as a as a young man, you were particularly struck by your local district attorney going for death penalty cases. Right. Here in Houston, we sent more people in what's called the modern era of the death penalty starting about in the 70s. We've sent more people here in Harris County to death row than like I think any of the other states. And it was just a machine down here. And it was really hard to miss if you were paying attention at all. And it was a, a very like oppressive environment 
to be in. And when I was a senior or so in high school, we had a death row exoneree come in and tell us his story. And I remember sitting on the front row, just really enthralled. Uh, his name was Clarence Brandley. And it was really listening to Clarence that led me on a path to ultimately be a criminal defense lawyer and be a, a capital uh, defense lawyer. It all kind of came full circle. In my last capital trial before I became a judge, during jury selection, I stood up and told the jury my story, my origin story. The prosecutor had told her story about being on the softball team and being on the jury. It's like being picked for the jury team, you know? And I got up and I said, you know, Clarence Brandley came and spoke to me in high school, and I actually will miss his funeral this week to try this case. And I think that that's what he would have wanted. And then the prosecutor objected uh, to my story, right? Even though it's really no different than her story, except for the substance of it. And uh, the judge sustained the objection. And so sometimes I like to tell that story and say, well, you know, I get to tell the story now because I'm the judge. That is a, that is a twist on it. And also, it's interesting that that your story was the one with substance. Right, exactly. That, that was relevant to the case at hand, right? Did you do a number of, of capital cases? Here and there. I mean, they, the thing is, thankfully, they are more rare. Uh, and so I worked on death capital teams, both at trial and appellate and post-conviction. Uh, I handled capital trials. But the thing is, is that capital litigation in Harris County these days is far less death capital litigation and far more what's called non-death capital litigation, even though you die in prison. So it's, it's kind of a strange way in which a reform has had this really kind of perverse outcome where because you get an automatic sentence at the end of a non-death capital, if they elect not to seek the death penalty, in some ways the trial is shorter and, and there's less process for the most severe punishment. Because the trial's over and there's no punishment phase, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You just go for life in prison. Right. And they, they can overcharge the cases, right? You know, if they charge that many death cases, they just wouldn't have the capacity to do it these days. But um, they can charge all these non-death capital cases and uh, then just like try to hammer people down for high sentences. And you were in L.A. and in Houston. Is that right? I went to UT in Austin and then I moved to New York. And actually, my, one of my first jobs out of college was being a civilian complaint review board investigator in New York. So I, I learned early on that that particular model of police oversight was like not a very good model. And, uh, you know, I tell people that because there are still I run into people that say, oh, we need a civilian review board. And I'm like, well, let's talk about that because those have never worked. Then I did. I moved to L.A. I put all my stuff in a truck. Uh, you know, I moved to New York when I, I wrecked my car the last couple weeks in Austin and got a check for more money I'd ever seen, about 2,500 bucks. And I was like, well, all right, great. I'll get out of town with this and somehow like made it work. And the trip to L.A. was something like that, too. At, at a certain point, I realized that the, the problem of my lifetime, the problem I cared most about was in my hometown. And even though I might rather live somewhere else, this is the place I needed to be. And so, yeah, I came back in uh, late 2008, early 2009 and started a solo practice because I knew I could do it because I grew up watching my dad do it in a different kind of way. But it's a hustle being a solo lawyer. And I knew that I could do it. But there was no public defender's office in Houston when I moved here. We were the largest city in the country without one. So finally, they got one funded, right? It was after the economic collapse. And finally, the, the county needed the money from the state for indigent defense. And so they got a public defender's office, and I was one of the first ones and helped kind of build the office up. 
And then you went back into private practice after being there for a while. Yeah, about three years. I'm a I'm a lousy a lousy desk employee. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And and uh, at some point after going back into private practice, it hit you to run for a judgeship. What made you decide to run for judge? There was a huge civil rights class action filed here in federal court called O'Donnell versus Harris County, where this woman, Miranda O'Donnell, was found by an organization called Civil Rights Corps that um, is bringing similar cases across the country, but this was the biggest one. I had been working in this system for many, many years, right? Just like pleading people to get out, pleading with judges and prosecutors to like show some restraint, which they wouldn't, right? They were extracting guilty pleas from people in full holdover cells, right? The holdover cell is the jail cell attached to the courtroom. And every morning I would go in there and there would be about 40 or 50 people, usually black and brown people, always poor people, right? Because the reason they're there is because they're poor, right? Because if they weren't poor, they would have paid to get out like the people sitting on the benches in the courtroom, right? Which who are also afflicted by this misery, but none more than the people in the holdover. So I walked in and battled in these full holdover cells for many years. And then this lawsuit comes along and the county really digs in in a really indefensible way. And the federal court judge sees the problem and then issues this really strong relief. And at that point, I saw an opportunity because I never wanted to be a judge, but I saw that the system as it was, was going to be destroyed. And I knew that there would be a new system built in its place. And I saw that I had the opportunity to try to see the demolition through and see the design of something different through also. And so that's ultimately why I did it. We'll be back after these messages. For more principled progressive journalism from the nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine. And right now, we've got a special deal just for Next Left listeners. You can save over 90% on a digital subscription and get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. You can find it at thenation.com slash podcasts subscribe. That's thenation.com forward slash podcast subscribe. Every time you support The Nation, it helps us make this podcast. So if you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a subscriber. Now it's time for a word about Elizabeth Warren. Campaigning in Iowa, she's been making her story America's story. And as a result, winning new supporters. That's what Joan Walsh says on our sister podcast at The Nation, Start Making Sense, hosted by John Wiener, the coolest man in L.A. That's Joan Walsh reporting on Elizabeth Warren in Iowa on the Start Making Sense podcast, political talk without the boring parts. New episodes every Thursday at thenation.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with Judge Franklin Bynum, who sits on the county court bench in Harris County, Texas. You were running for what's best described as a low-level judgeship, not some super powerful Supreme Court position or something like that. But you felt that just coming in as an individual, or as perhaps part of a group of individuals, new judges, that you could have a real impact. 
And I know that I can because I saw it happen every day. And this is something Texas is a strange place about judges because Republicans in Texas have long understood that judicial positions are political positions. Here they are elected in partisan elections. Uh, They use judge positions as a way of getting into politics and, you know, building a base. And so, you know, John Cornyn was a judge. Greg Abbott was a judge. Louis Gohmert was a judge in Texas. The U.S. senator, the governor, and a prominent member of Congress. Right. Like all like pretty reactionary people. Right. And so I think that a lot of the a lot of the fictions that we tell ourselves about judges, particularly federal judges across the country in Texas are a little bit exposed by the partisan nature of the elections and the elections themselves. There's still rules, but um, it's a different kind of place down here. And so I ran a different kind of campaign. I decided that I would campaign in front of the county jail during visitation hours and tell people that I was a socialist, that I was a prison abolitionist, and that I was trying to end pretrial detention. So the level of court that I ran for is the level of court where the lawsuit was pending. It's cases above a traffic ticket and below a felony. But that's a lot of cases, you know, and it's a lot of the cases where the worst stuff happens. People being locked up for driving while license invalid, just straight up poverty offenses because the reason their license is suspended is because they owe these surcharges. Low-level stuff where people are spending way too much time in jail. Like, the the misdemeanor system is really the part of the system that is the least defensible. I mean, it's all not defensible, but the misdemeanor system in particular. And I think it also is where something is really illustrated, and that is what this system actually is. The system defends itself, the the greater kind of what I call, what, what I and many call the punishment bureaucracy. It kind of defends itself by saying, what about the murders, right? But really, the system is really bad at solving those cases and bringing them to a fair resolution. It's actually like abysmal at it. And the bulk of the system is the stuff that falls into my level of court, right? Where police are used as private security, basically, for every gas station parking lot and Walmart self-checkout. And on and on, right, where police force is deployed against social problems that the state has decided for one reason or another that we're going to deploy police and prosecutors at and not actually solve any underlying problems or even address their underlying problems. We're just going to cycle masses and masses of people through. That's actually what the system is. While it says it is something completely different that it's really bad at. And in this case, being a socialist actually helps you to kind of see the whole picture, I would think, as regards criminal justice, as it fits into all the other injustices. Right. In the sense that I can see root causes and I want to talk about root causes and I don't have the the magic kind of power to make it all go away and redirect all these resources that are directed to police and prosecutors to care. Right. But every day it's something that I am trying to do kind of on a, on a person by person basis, which kind of is the job of judge, right? Is it's a really powerful job and it's a really human job, a really humanist kind of job. As, as much as I don't really have a whole lot of warm and fuzzy kind of like liberal feelings about, about process and democracy in the way that some people do, right? In the sense that those things alone are going to save us, right? I, I do really doing the job, see the value of at the end point of power, right? That, that there is this individual determination, right? And the great ones are the ones that are like fair and merciful and kind and caring and all of those things, you know, and righteous. I mean, what are the things you want in a judge, right? It's a great character in a democratic society, right? To 
at the last moment be like, no, you're not going to do this, right? No police, you're not going to do this, you know, no, this is wrong. It's great. It's a, it is a great, really underappreciated feature of our system. One of the things you've done is to kind of amplify attention to this level of judgeship uh, and show a different way to run for it. You started your campaign, more or less, by collecting the signatures to get on the ballot uh, outside of the courtrooms, right? Or around outside the courthouse, as opposed to the way that so many judges do, which would be like passing their papers among other lawyers and among the elites. Because that, yeah, that, that was the whole reason I was doing it, right? It was, it was really more of uh, like an organizing job, but we were organizing around an electoral position, but an electoral position with a specific plan in mind, right? It's like, we have this opportunity to take this bench and do this, right? And I think that talking about how, you know, people on the left or liberals or, or however you want to characterize it, right, over the years have like used and misused the judiciary, right? That also appears in this story too, because the strategy of liberals over the years has been high stakes civil rights litigation in federal courts and then getting these, you know, pronouncements that something is wrong and then there's no political follow through and the federal courts are unwilling or unable, a little of both, to actually follow through and, you know, see that the, the problem is ultimately remedied. It was the problem in Brown versus Board of Education. It was the problem in all of these things. And so when I saw this bail lawsuit happening, I'm like, well, it's not enough. Federal courts are great at disrupting systems. And I saw this system was disrupted. But I knew that we had to build a, a political and an organizing. We had to build a base of power and follow through on the disruption. And you ran on a, a very clear platform. You spelled it out on your website, campaigning. You even got attention in the New York Times and other places of really a lot of radical interventions. And what's interesting is that you took the time to spell it out to, to have the discourse to such an extent that you got some very mainstream endorsements, including that of the Houston Chronicle. I think that what I want to do is ultimately, and what, what the greater movement wants to do, is ultimately like a really popular thing. When I was campaigning around the county and when I was telling them what I wanted to do, I, I don't think I found a single person who, when they heard it, didn't like it. Because nobody likes a system uh, of wealth-based detention. I mean, it's crazy. The median income of Houston is somewhere just south of 200% of the federal poverty guidelines, right? So any type of system that requires a payment is going to result in the detention of a whole lot of people, right? And that's not the way anyone wants to live. And so you proposed a lot of interventions that, that begin, at the least, to undo a wealth-based system of justice. Tell us about a few of the things that you you spelled out on the campaign trail and that you have continued to talk about as a judge. The main thing that we did was that we changed the local rules, right? Every court has local rules. Every court everywhere has local rules. And those local rules are kind of subordinate to kind of the state laws and then whatever higher, broader laws that people think of as the laws, the implementation of those is typically in a court in local rules. And you can imagine that those are a real mess of some really bad practices put into writing. So what we did is we came in and changed the local rules to say 
basically everyone arrested for a misdemeanor, except for these four narrow categories, shall be released, period. There's no risk assessment. There's no fancy algorithm. The algorithms aren't fancy, by the way. They're ridiculous. But yeah, we dispense with all of the things that uh, even kind of more moderate reformers in other places have put into place to try to replace the system before it and just said, no, the law and the Constitution say that people charged are innocent. And so we want to treat them that way. We want them released right away. You know, I've been going to these meetings trying to tell people for weeks and it's worked, right? That no, we really mean it, right? We really mean just turn them around, right? Like get the information you need and turn it around. And not just that, but we're going back into state law and saying, how do we reduce arrests, right? Because I campaigned on reducing arrests. And one of them is, is that state law authorized people to get tickets instead of being arrested for certain levels of certain categories. And so we're working on implementing that. They always said it was a technology problem. And so I said, well, I'm really good at such things. So let's start a committee. So we did. And the committee has basically been sitting in a room with high ranking brass at different police agencies across the county telling me that they don't know how to write a ticket and they've, they can't even fathom such a thing. What, you, you want me to write the person's number, name and number down and they're going to come answer for this? What are you talking about? And to see it all in action has, has really been interesting, but it's worked because ultimately we control the rules and people follow them. And the rules now are people are automatically released for almost everything. The only people that aren't automatically released, things like assaults with family member allegations and things like that, they are released, right? Typically because the law requires it, but they just have to see a judge first to, for entry of temporary orders, protective orders, things like that, just to make sure that when they are released, that we have a peaceful status quo for everyone to be in while the person resolves their business with the court. When we first came into the system, we had what you would imagine taking over a system of massive illegal detention. We had masses of people illegally detained. And so we had these consolidated, what were called jail dockets. And when I first did those, I couldn't believe what I saw people in jail on $10,000 bail for marijuana possession, people being held in jail because they owed fines and fees and had a warrant out for their arrest. People who, I mean, just atrocious things. People were being held. I encountered someone who was in jail because she gave her maiden name to a police officer or some married name. And uh, since that didn't match up with the police officer's database, he was like, well, this is a failure to identify yourself. And just cleaning all that up and dumping those cases and releasing those people and telling people when they wanted to plead guilty to get out, which I did for many years, it was, it was a battle. Remember I told you that holdover cells were full, but like we were displaced because of the hurricane for two years. And we just moved back to the courthouse that has the holdover cells. We were in the courthouse without the holdover cells, but we just moved back in. And the first day that we went back, my holdover cell had three people in it. And I had seen them 50 people full for years. And I came home and cried because I had never seen in a, in a way that, that made me understand so clearly that we had done it. When the Houston Chronicle, again, a, a relatively conservative newspaper, historically a pretty Republican paper, endorsed you for judge, one of the most interesting things they said was that your courtroom, your courtroom could become a model for the state and even the nation. Do you embrace that concept that you may be, you know, in this one small court in Texas, perhaps spinning out ideas that could reshape criminal justice statewide and nationally? I think that, that um, this is a hard place to 
be a socialist organizer down in Texas. And we have the worst practices to face here in our criminal system, our criminal bureaucracy. And so in some way, it's not surprising to me that the biggest change comes from here because we have the farthest to go and we have the hardest activists to do it. People have been battle hardened, so to speak. Yeah, iron sharpens iron. You make the distinction that you're not a prison reformer, you're a prison abolitionist. And you put that into the context of many historic struggles to abolish unjust practices and procedures. Let's talk about that. Well, I was long ago, you know, inspired by great like abolitionist minds, you know. This is not a defensible system, right? It's an outgrowth of chattel slavery, right? This is not something that should exist. And yet, it's not going to just disappear overnight, probably. Uh, it, it's going to take work to to take the thing apart and to stop the practices. Being a judge, something I see is that, you know, I can say all day long, this actually is a bad way to address this social problem and, and we should address root causes. And people do expect the courts to address the problem, right? Because that's the way it's worked, right? And so it's, it's kind of an unwinding process and a process of changing expectations. I have a, like a lending library in my chambers, Alex Vitale left me a couple copies of The End of Policing, and they're right there front and center for anyone that walks in, including police officers. And they'll ask, like, well, what's this all about? And I'll be like, well, here's what it's all about. I think that we deploy police and prosecutors for social problems that they're ill-equipped to handle, and I think that we should stop doing that. And what we'll reach at the end of that process is something that will not at all resemble the system we have now, and it won't be a prison system. It will be a far better society. So I, whatever we have now, it has to go. Do you imagine that you might run for a higher level judgeship or like many of the people you cited earlier in our conversation, perhaps run for uh, a non-judicial job to kind of take this message up the, up the political food chain? Being in these committee meetings, I certainly do kind of see the the power and the value of something that I never really was interested in, which was going to similar meetings, but in like a legislative context or a, you know, like a different kind of policymaking context. But the thing is, the reason I love my job is that it is really pinned down to humans, you know, like people down here that are really affected and like looking at them, telling them I care about them, right? Every day in my court is like a really emotional kind of experience, you know, and my 10 years before this, I was a trial lawyer, which is a very emotional kind of human practice. And so I really am reluctant to walk away from this level of work. It does mean a lot to tell people you care about them. I think that that's probably one of the most fundamental things that, that a good judge does. And also to, to show a part of yourself. You, you mentioned just as we were starting this conversation, that your dad was a rock and roll producer before he became a lawyer with one of the really seminal psychedelic bands in American history, the 13th Floor Elevators. Did you, is that a part of your growing up and your culture? It was, yeah, in the sense that we had people coming in and coming out of my life all the time. I grew up in a small law firm, my dad's small law firm, where he was just doing small car wrecks, you know, splitting the money up, right? Giving people some walking around money. But also just having all these characters from his past drift in and out. I mean, there was a guy that would come crash on my couch. We called him Peyote Bob, right? 
and uh, Peyote Bob would show up and crash on the couch. And I think that what I learned from the whole process was, from, and from my dad, who I recently lost, was he really believed in people. And he really would always give somebody a chance. And he always extended a helping hand, even when he'd been hurt by someone. I mean, to a fault, really. He cared about other people and just put it into action every day. And that's what I grew up with. And I think that that's the part of my dad that I carry into this job. Were there particular 13th floor elevator songs that your dad produced? I mean, the big one was You're Gonna Miss Me. He's on the, the record. He's on the, uh, the, the big one that's the beginning of High Fidelity, which I guess is how most people know it. But many people know it not from that, right? Yeah, it's a big, big kind of deal recorded here at uh, Sugar Hill Studios in Houston. It's really big rock and roll stuff, brother. Do you, are, do you still listen to that at all? What do you listen to? Yeah, from time to time, I do. Um, you know, what do I listen to the most? Uh, I listen to, when I'm not at work, I'm trying to, I have a desk job now, right? And I'm so sedentary. So uh, I listen to a lot of electronic music and just try to like pump up BPMs and like move my body like down the street with my dogs or on my bike or, or something because, you know, sitting around on a bench all day is uh, hazardous to my health. Totally is. I'm liking a judge that listens to electronic music. What's on your What's on your headphone right now? Uh, so I listen to this uh, weekly progressive trance show called Group Therapy, and it's also really cool because it has like kind of a, a humanist touch to it, right? Where there, you know, people there's a there's a whole community around it, right? And the whole name of the show, I think, uh, you know, talks about music as uh, being important to feelings and moods and uh, a way to connect with people. So I, I really do love that. You haven't been thinking about wiring the courtroom, have you? I have been actually working on improving the audio in the courtroom because there's a microphone and people can't hear. So I, I'm a hack audio uh, engineer. My first job in high school was that I worked at a radio station here. Uh, actually, right after deregulation, Nationwide Insurance owned some radio stations here. And I was a, an engineer at a radio station that got bought like three times in the year and a half that I worked there after Clinton deregulation. And eventually I hated one of the owners and quit. Judge Franklin Bynum, I appreciate you joining us here on Next Left uh, and telling us a little about uh, your experience running for a judgeship and now serving as a judge. Thanks, John. It's nice to be here. Join us next week as we take the next left with Florida State Representative Anna Eskamani the daughter of Iranian immigrants who has emerged as a major player in issues of economic and social and racial justice in one of our nation's most dynamic states. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia steiner Eboy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds and Aaron O'Mara and Katrina Vandenhuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. Recording help this week came from the judge himself. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts. <laughs>